G'day and welcome to the potty in which I connect with some of the most influential guests from across Australia and the globe to share their very inspirational stories. I was born with cystic fibrosis, a chronic illness in which I was told would most certainly ruin my life. But like many of the incredible humans that I have on this show, I'm on a mission to prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we choose to respond to them. I'm your host, the captain of the ship and the man in charge, Bradley J. Drybra, and this is a lot to talk about. G'day Tom Nash, how are you man? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Mate, I'm very well. Been listening to your book, loving it. I'm about, I think I'm about 50% of the way through. Yep. The thing Interesting that's... you didn't say half, you said 50%. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's <laughs> if that's that is you get to 60, you can say 60, not like two thirds. I like it. It's, it's a fair <laughs> point. It's a yeah. fair point. I can't give you an answer as to why, but the one thing I will say that has stood out in the first half of your book is you have an incredible way of framing your hardship and challenge through the humour and or through the lens of dark humour. Mm. So, what is it about dark humour that for you allows you to, whether it be cope with or process or shed light on the challenges that you face? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that, I mean, I've always liked dark humour, but when dark shit happens to you, that's the only type of humour you can find, yeah. I, I guess. So it's not necessarily a conscious effort of that, but yeah, maybe that's, shaped the sense of humor that i have but i feel like i already had a dark sense of humor before i lost my arms and legs so this was just material for me one of the things i love the most about the book so far is your descriptions of some of the people who you spent time in hospital with now someone who spent a couple weeks at a time in hospital on a number of different occasions you've got a lot of time in hospital to think and you find that you do create some relationships with the people you share that hospital with my favourite of yours being Bob, who you very much describe as a fat blob of a man who looks like he could be a Vietnam War veteran, but most certainly isn't. Yeah. No, was it probably wasn't a Vietnam War vet. Uh, I, I only just assumed, not because of his age or anything, he sort of fit the profile, but just the lack of courage that he had. <laughs> Except to which he complained. It seemed like uh, the type that would have been sent to war. Uh, but no, yeah, Bob was just, I mean, he was emblematic of the fact that I was in the wrong ward. Mm. I mean, not medically in the wrong ward, but just socially. Mm. Because, you know, at that point when I was in the rehab hospital, there were these two wards. It was the rehabilitation ward, which I was in. And that was predominantly populated with geriatrics, older people who'd lost limbs uh, due to, you know, maybe diabetes or something like that. And so the the average demographic was, you know, 70 years old or something like that. And they weren't the kind of people that to a 20 year old, I had a lot in common with. Of course. Uh, but the other ward, which was the spinal ward, was filled with younger people, people around my age, because mm. they're the ones that break their backs doing, you know, fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and they're the ones that, you know, once I'd reached that level of independence that I could take myself down to that ward and hang out with them, uh, that's when I started developing relationships in hospitals that were um, you know, fruitful, good friendships. And and I think that's kind of important in times like that because, you know, when you're in hospital, visiting hours only last a certain amount of time. And certainly my friends and family exceeded those limits mm. on most days. 
But at the end of the day, on a Friday night, if it's after eight o'clock, sometimes you don't have anyone there. And so it's great to be able to go down and hang out with other fellow inmates, I guess. Well, I think that through hardship, you find a couple of things, but the thing you find is coping strategies and support systems. And they are, as you said, so fruitful. But before we dive into that, I think probably some of the audience is thinking, what the fuck are these guys talking about and why was Tom in hospital? When I read your story and when I first discovered who you were and what you were about, I was somewhat shocked as to how you'd come across your hardship. It seems like it almost come out of thin air. It was a challenge that you most certainly wouldn't expect as a, as a somewhat healthy 19-year-old man at the time. But listening to your book, I heard that you contracted meningococcal. Now, if I'm getting this correct, it's a C strain and the term septicemia. Yeah. How does that happen? And what does that actually mean? Because I think we've all heard of meningococcal. I remember getting the jabs for it at school. You know, but I'm not exactly sure how it you know, comes to in the body and how it challenges you. I know surprisingly little about the medical background of meningococcal, partly because I don't care. Uh, but mainly just because it's quite complicated. The, the most that I know about it is that it's contracted uh, typically via saliva. Um, so sharing drinks or somebody coughing on you, not too dissimilar to how you contract COVID actually. Mm. Um, although obviously COVID is far more virulent um, and meningococcal is rarer. Uh, but I think from my very hazy memory, there, there's something to do with the fact that some people actually can carry it in the back of their throat and be unaffected by it. And then there's a smaller percent of the population that are susceptible to it. And if they have particularly weak immune systems at the time or a combination of both, uh, then those two people come in contact and share saliva. You know, you're passing around a joint or something, you can get it. Mm. So again, very rare. And then uh, I think a year or two after I got it, there was a vaccine produced, um, which wasn't mandatory but i think a lot of the population ended up taking it up and so i think i'm not sure but i think it's even rarer now than it was many years ago so um that's all i know about it effectively it is a disease that uh can cause septicemia which is blood poisoning the c strain which i had is uh the one that causes septicemia and there's all sorts of different other ones that can cause neurological problems but which I hope it's obvious uh, I don't have. Um, but the septicemia is particularly deadly because when your blood goes septic, then you get gangrene on your extremities. Uh, that was the first of many pirate references in my life. Um, and then, uh, you know, once you have gangrene on your fingers and toes, you have to start thinking about cutting them off. And mine was at such an advanced stage that everything that they were doing to try and save my limbs didn't work. I was administered a drug called activated protein C, which I think was in trial phases at the time. And I was asked to give consent as to whether I was able to, whether the doctors were able to use it on me. And I gave consent, although I don't remember that happening. Uh, I was only told about that by a doctor later in life. And that would have been what saved my life. I was on life support for quite a while in a coma induced by the doctors for a couple of weeks. They performed what's called a phaseotomy on me. Uh, you might have been past that in the book already, which is something I encourage people not to Google. Uh, but it's the, where they cut down the length of your arm or leg to allow the muscle uh, root to swell. And so it was very touch and go. I had a very small chance of survival 
to the point where for family and friends were called in to kind of come in and say their goodbyes. And um, I wasn't obviously aware of that at the time because I was in a coma. So when I came out, I'd obviously gotten over a particular hurdle. It looked like I had a better chance of survival, but still unlikely. And for me to be able to survive, they were going to have to amputate limbs because otherwise the septicemia would spread uh, into various different parts of my body and eventually kill me. It already affected my organs. I think I lost the use of one kidney and half my liver. I mean, that regenerates. It's not a big deal. But, you know, if left for too long unchecked, it would definitely have killed me. And so the amputations were necessary to stop the the septic um, tissue spreading. I remember a conversation in the book with your grandfather, I believe, Mm. where he comes to visit you and you have a conversation as though he maybe thinks he's addressing you for the last time. I believe he's come from overseas to see you. And you make a remark that I'm not sure whether you even totally believe in at the time, but out of an attempt to be positive and optimistic, you, you know, I recall you saying something along the lines of, you know, I'll I'll beat this and next time that we see each other, I'll be coming over to see you. Yeah. And that was cheaply because, I mean, he had some heart conditions and was pretty much on the no-fly list at that point. I think he broke that rule to come over because I was probably going to die. And, yeah, I think... the idea of me telling him that I was going to come over and visit him, it, uh, it, it wasn't some sort of bravado. Like, I think I actually believed that I would do that. And it wasn't just trying to stay positive or lying to myself. Uh, it was myopic, I guess, in a way, because I thought to myself, I didn't realize the severity of my situation, I think. I didn't realize how close I was and the likelihood that I would survive would be so little. That's the interesting thing for me about manager coppler at least the manager couple you've experienced is hearing you talk about the early symptoms the early symptoms being almost the instantaneous symptoms as things progressively got worse but i recall you know something like flu-like symptoms where you felt almost a bit nasally it then turns to headache fever then you being in a position where you can barely get yourself up off the ground you know to get to it from the shower mm. and then your stepsister i believe it was knocks on the door to check on you and she instantly notices not just a difference in, you know, there's some symptoms there, but a physical difference as though your body is starting to swell. And then before you know it, you're in hospital, yeah. absolutely fighting for your life. Very quick, yeah. Do you think because it was so quick and has come completely out of the blue and somewhat blindsided you that you don't process how dangerous this is? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you don't. I mean, I didn't know what meningococcal was before I contracted it. I mean, I'd heard it, the term thrown around while I was in high school or something. You know, so one of those impotent efforts by medical companies to disseminate information among the youth, you know, uh, which always works so well. Um, but I didn't know what it was and I definitely wasn't interested. Um, and so when I, was, when I woke up and I was told what I had, there's no way of knowing how serious it is. And, and the way that... Uh, hospital staff and parents and friends um, you know, deploy information to you is always with an air of caution because they want you to have the mental fortitude to try and battle it as best you can. And so they, don't, they want to be able to give you hope. I guess, yeah. You know? And so I think there was an element of that and not being fully aware of how bad the situation was and not knowing anything about the disease itself. Uh, and as you say, you know, how quickly it happened and also then being in a coma where you're not really getting any information from people. 
um, yeah, you're completely blindsided and you're not really aware of uh, how dire si the situation is. Uh, I'm not sure whether that worked to my advantage or not. Like maybe, you know, as we're discussing with my grandfather, me thinking like, oh, I'm definitely going to come and visit you. Oh, there was another a distinct memory that I had in those early stages because I hadn't had a drink of water, obviously, when I was in the coma. And for a week after coming out of the coma, I had a tube down my throat breathing for me and I was on a drip and that's how I was getting my liquids, right? Mm. And um, so I hadn't drunk water in like two or three weeks or something. My mouth was so dry. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, for some reason, in my head, I was still in Balmain Hospital and not in RPA. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of your understanding of Sydney geography, Balmain Hospital is kind of down the road from this bar that I used to work at from time to time called the Monkey Bar in Balmain. doesn't exist anymore. It's something else. Um, but they used to have these distinctive long schooner glasses that were kind of like V-shaped. Mm. So not your average schooner glass. And what I really wanted more than anything was an ice cold water in one of those really long schooner glasses. I don't know why I had it in my head. I was like, I want to just get out of this hospital, walk down the road, go to the monkey bar and get this really long scooter of ice cold water and just completely smash it. <laughs> so, so there was like delusionary effects implicit even when I was lucid in the hospital, not even really thinking about where I was properly. Mm. You know, um, the interesting thing about that lack of water situation was that it informs my appreciation of something that I previously took for granted to an extent that I've never had with anything before. I, the, the first time I ever had water after not drinking it for three weeks, I remember thinking to myself, I'm never going to underappreciate or take for granted just being able to drink water ever again in my life. And the weird thing is I haven't to this day, there's been like five times this week that I've had a glass of water that I've thought about that moment. Oh, it's a good glass of water. It's a great glass of water, right? And I think to myself, what an amazing gift, right? You know, to have had that taken away from you to the extent where you can appreciate something as mundane as a glass of water. Mm -hmm. And I can have that appreciation several times a week for 20 years just because for a couple of weeks I didn't have it. I tend to believe that hardship and adversity gives you a an amplified ability to utilize perspective and yep. it most certainly affords you gratitude for simple things yeah yeah i mean that it's not limited to that i think adversity is the cornerstone of what makes us strong as people uh, that's just one aspect of it is just the appreciating the ebbs and flows of life and knowing that you know what's important is not how many positive experiences you have but it's the delta between the negative and the positive experiences and being able to understand that as a perspective. Yeah, food never tastes um, as good as when you're hungry, does it? Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting point because I have a mate of mine. His name is Brett Cannellan. He's a fascinating human being. He was attacked by a bull shark. He lives to tell the story. I use that story, by the way. Just to, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there you go. Particularly when I'm overseas and everybody thinks that Australians are constantly being attacked by wild animals. Yep. And so they're like, oh, what happened to you? And I always say shark attack. <laughs> <laughs> and I use bull shark because it sounds a lot like bullshit. Okay, I like it. I like it. Well, the funny thing is, Brett is one of those unique human beings who it's actually one in 11.5 million, you know, to one that you're attacked by a shark. So it's even, um, yeah. 
Yeah, for all the people in the US, it's more yeah. like Wonder One. We've all experienced. Yeah, that's that. right. Yeah. Um, Drop bears in the way. But it's really interesting because we often talk about the contrast in our in our challenges. Mm. Now, I was born with a condition mm. that, from the start, was going to present me with a few challenges. He, at the age of you know, being somewhere in his twenties, you know, I think early twenties it was, just before mid twenties, faced this life changing moment of adversity. And it's interesting to see how then that converts to resilience. So if I look back with hindsight, there are things in my story that I can identify as key points that built a level of resilience and changed the way that I looked at adversity. For him, that had to become learned very quickly to make it through the other side of that challenge. Yeah. One of the things that was harrowing to me was to listen to you speak about the daily, and I mean three to five hours daily, of having bandages removed and how painful that was. Mm. At the time, was it present to you or was it conscious that this was an opportunity to develop huge resilience or was it just so painful and just almost heartbreaking to be in that position that at the time, is there any sort of um, victim mentality? No, you just want it to go away, mm. right? It's like physical pain is one of those things that's, it's quite interesting because it affects your mental state in in the sense that neither can progress because it's like kind of like a barrier. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that I just needed to keep the faith that it would be over at some point soon. Mm. You know, this won't last forever. Because it can't. You know, I would literally die if that happened. And so, you know, sometimes you don't need to necessarily... Um, be conscious of being resilient or I like to call it anti-fragile. I think it's a completely different thing. Um, but we can get onto that later. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, knowing what you have control over, mm. knowing what you don't have control over, uh, that to which you don't have control over you accept to an extent and understand that it's a temporary situation. And when you have these glimmers of that pain going away, whether it be mental or physical pain, you know, utilize that increment um, of progress to build momentum. I love that. That's a beautiful message. And it's interesting how, you know, you speak about physical pain creating mental pain. I think that in most cases, the mental side is the hardest side to overcome for many people. But for you, the physical change has been vast. You know, you're a quadruple amputee. You know, I've spoken to people on the podcast who have, you know, become paralyzed and lost use of maybe one or two limbs or to a certain extent lost control or feeling of their body. But to lose, you know, from I think it's six inches below the knee down and then from somewhere in the forearm, elbow. right? Or the elbow. Through the elbow, yeah. Through the elbow. That presents a whole new challenge in the way of living. Now, you seem to handle it really well now. You've had years of getting used to this and processing this. What was the, I guess, what was the journey of processing that change like and how hard was it for you to adapt? Well, I mean, I think it, it's rarely ever useful to compare disability to disability or mm. anyone for that matter. You know, whether you have lost one limb, you're a paraplegic or you, it doesn't... Of really, course. It's, it's the only benefit that it has is it seeks to highlight how individualistic everybody's experience is right but which is you know often why i hate the one-size-fits-all approach to you know disability I, I could think that there's nothing that could be further from the truth you know i'm extremely different to most people that have disabilities as are others 
Um, and so, yeah, as I said before, it seeks to highlight the individualism, you know, in every scenario. And so my ability to overcome physical challenges has been a really unique approach. What has to be, right? Because I have a unique disability. There's not 450,000 people walking around with no arms and legs, although that would be amusing. Um, so at the end of the day, like the way that we approach problems has to be from an individualistic point of view, I think. And you need to be able to find within you your way of overcoming problems or problem solving or doing whatever, because that is able to be mapped onto future problems. You know, whereas if you're constantly mapping your life onto the way that other people approach things, then you're going to be playing a game of catch up for the rest of your life. Uh, sure. Yeah. What did that individual process look like for you? Because you were 19, 20 at the time. Yeah, so 19 when I got sick, 20 when I got out of hospital. Um, a lot of my independence came the most from being left alone. Because it's very easy when you're in a hospital to be assisted by people. And I lived with my mother for six, eight months after I got out of hospital because I wasn't yet ready to be completely independent. Pulse. And um, always having people around to help out with things and then I noticed when I moved out on my own which is about six eight months later or something uh there were moments where I was alone in the house just on my own and uh I'd need to like light a cigarette and I'm like ah oh, fuck I want to light a cigarette and I was like getting one of those big lighters you know and I'm trying to do the curly spinny thing yeah. you know I tried for hours didn't work and then I have all sorts of different approaches like using the toaster and all of this crap so i'm starting to like nut things out and i'm also developing a really great understanding of my skills and limitations with hooks right mm. uh, and i remember one day i just stumbled upon matches and i'm like oh i can use matches of course so i sat there striking like the whole box of matches and then it was that point that i realized um you know sometimes when you're solving problems you're thinking how do i use this lighter when what you should be thinking is how do i set fire to something it frames, it frames the challenge. It's framing the challenge differently. It's it? framing it differently, but it's also solving the problem in reverse a little bit, right? Because you're you're starting at the end point and you're redefining the problem itself, mm. right? I'm not trying to use lighter here. I'm trying to set fire to something. So what's a different way that I can do that? We we use the same approach. I mean, when Chris and I started Starfuckers, and we were going to be DJs, right? Mm. Like, you know, how do you become a DJ? Well, the well-worn path or the, the path to penance, you know, in, in the typical way is that you you buy equipment and you practice DJing and then maybe you make a mixtape and you spend months honing your craft and, you know, giving demos out to clubs and begging for gigs. And we thought, well, hang on a second. Being a DJ is about curating music in front of people in a club. Why don't we start a club? So we decided a club and then we put ourselves on as the headline DJs, right? And people ended up turning up because we had a different approach to DJs. We were at the center of the night. We focused on, you know, the theme and the decorations and the marketing and the people that were at the door and curating the drinks and all sorts of different things such that we were like, we were curating context more than anything. And within that context, we put ourselves as the DJs. All right. I really like that. And then people started listening to us. They didn't care that we didn't have skills. And then the added benefit of that was that we learned how to DJ really quickly because we were thrown in the deep end with it. Yeah, I really like it because it's a it's a burn the bridges or burn the boats approach, isn't it? When you throw yourself in the deep end, <coughs> that, 
two options. Yeah. Do we either learn how to swim? Yeah. Fucking dragon. Yeah, that's right. And also we're in a position where we have nothing to lose. You know, it's not as though we'd accrued all this reputational capital that, you know, if we threw a party, everybody was like, well, you're never playing in this town again. Right. Yeah. We weren't DJs anyway. Well, it's funny you say this. I was sitting down for a coffee just a few moments ago before I got here with a good friend of mine and Dylan Mullen. And Dylan's in the podcast space as well. And you know, I'd say we share um, you know, similar position in the space in which we're trying to foster audience and build things up and you know, eventually be at the top of the charts. We'd both love to be there. We're vocal about it. Um, but when you build from a foundation of zero, you have very little to lose and a whole lot to gain. Mm. You know, I'm not in Rogan's position where you know, testing out a new approach or, you know, trying to change the format means I lose 11 million subscribers. That's exactly right, yeah. um, you know, you lose a few thousand and it's like, sometimes you got to be willing to lose a little bit to gain a lot. Absolutely. I think, you know, we need to sort of change our approach to the culture around failure, I think. Mm. You know, it was Thomas Edison that said, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I've successfully found 10,000 things that don't work, right? And, you know, we need to kind of embrace failure in a way. And, and it's logical to do so as well, because when you think about, and I've had these reservations before about, you know, uh, keynotes that I do or content that I put out or whatever it is, uh, you know, you have that reservation about like, oh, how's this going to be perceived? Are they going to like that? Are they going to hate that? Is this a stupid thing to be saying? The one thing you need to remind yourself about is nobody cares about your life as much as you do. Like you're the one that's overthinking everything. Every, every reservation that you have about doing what you're doing is happening in here and nowhere out there. It's interesting you say this because I think that is, uh, for me, is super present now at the age of 27, speaking as though I'm a wise 77 year old. I can Why is 77? <laughs> or it just seems like the most of the set. It's the age of guru wisdom. Um, it's, I can imagine Confucius was around 77 yeah. when all these But when he was 76, he's like, I don't know. Don't he's like, I'm still it. figuring it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's funny to look back on me in my early 20s, highly insecure. Mm. Highly insecure about things that don't matter all that much around how I look. I used to struggle with cystic acne a bit. Mm, right. If I had a cyst breakout, oh, I can't leave the house. Mm. Now, I remember the first few times I filmed a podcast, I'm at, this would be around 212 episodes. Mate, for the first 50, I hated seeing myself on camera. Mm. And you stress about silly things, right? Silly things. At that age, you are highly susceptible, though, to thinking that you are the most important and central thing that matters in the world mm. and that everyone else cares about how you present yourself, yeah, the whole thing, yeah. how you are. It is such a front that we almost put on. And I think about those insecurities and how much they held me back from opportunities mm. and taking relevant steps towards the things that I wanted or, you know, desired in my life. For you at that pivotal age of 20, you know, was there insecurity and challenges with the amputation, with the fact that you speak about like knowing that the skin was going to be scarred? Was that stuff difficult for you or was there just such an appreciation for life after the fact that you were able to somewhat squash that? I definitely remember wondering uh you know whether i would yeah, ever be uh appealing to people like to the opposite sex right that kind of thing um i was lucky enough to have those doubts quashed quite early after leaving hospital because i got into a relationship with somebody um and because before that i thought well it's gonna be pretty hard for me to pull now isn't it right <laughs> 
as you know, you're a 20 year old man, of course, that's what you're thinking about. One of the things anyway. Um, but then I had this realization, which was, you know, when I first got into a relationship with somebody, um, I started wondering to myself, well, what does she see in me? And, uh, I started to pick up on things that she really liked about me. Maybe it was my perspective, my sense of humor, like whatever it was. And I realized that, you know, it, it doesn't really behoove you to dwell on things that you've lost. You know, you need to shift your focus to what you have, not what you don't. And it's like the Pareto distribution, you know what I mean? Like uh, 80% of the attention you get is probably from 20% of, you know, what you're, you know, who you are or something. So, you know, lean into what you have. I think it's a beautiful point because I, I see so many people crippled by this idea of insecurity. And like I said, I put my hand up on one of them at one stage. And then you identify, like you said, the things that are important, your strengths, and how you can double down with it. Mm. And I'm much like you said, I was blessed that, you know, last year I met my partner and she's the most fucking amazing person. And I just happen to be the luckiest bloke in the world because I've landed the most beautiful woman in the world. She's absolutely gorgeous. It blows my mind. Like I've just hit the jackpot. Mm. But the thing that I love about her most is how kind she is. Mm. She's the kindest person I've ever met. Yeah. And while she's incredibly beautiful, the thing I always come back to is, fuck, she is the nicest person. Well, that's the thing is like the, the things that we tend to end up appreciating about, you know, our partners or our close friends or whatever it is, ends up having very little to do with how they present themselves, whether they have mm. acne or not or things like For that. For sure. Um, you can appreciate someone aesthetically for a fleeting moment. But if you want to keep them around for longer than that, there's got to be more depth to it. Uh, hi, to everyone uh, watching from home. We had a little bit of a technical malfunction where the podcaster, or the roadcaster, as we say, yeah. <laughs> uh, wasn't actually recording the audio from the Shaw microphones. What you've been listening to up to this point is the scratch audio put through some process post-processing yes uh so now we're going to switch to the actual microphones mm. continue the conversation like nothing happened play along yeah and the crazy thing is that i just spoke about being the pro who's done 212 episodes <laughs> it happens to everyone uh, you, Actually, you'd like to think so weirdly what i was going to say to you before you you were mentioning something about being 27 and looking back on your 20 year old self and mm. having those you're like oh i was, couldn't believe i had that, that many insecurities or whatever it is um, spoiler alert: That never changes, right? Not mm. the not the physical insecurity part, but you always look back on your younger self and kind of cringe at things that you did or said or uh, at the way you so acted, true. right? That will continue until the day you die. But knowing that is actually really important because it allows you to be freer in your present moment mm. and to be like, I'm just going to be true to myself right now. I know that there's something that I'm going to say that I'm going to look back on in ten years and be like, what a dickhead, yeah. right? But, you know, if I operate under the guise of thinking like that all the mm. time, I'll never say anything. And if you don't say anything, you don't get better at saying things. 100%. And that is the thing for me that I look back on the early stages of even, like I've started this podcast three and a half years ago now. Mm. And I look at, you know, some of the things that I, I thought were going to be important to me, some of the ways that I approach things, the way that I operated in the world. And at the time... Fuck, I thought I had it figured out. You look back and you think, what were you doing, mate? Mm. You know? And it's that funny thing that I, I don't know if we ever look back on the past at a lot of the things we do and are super favorable about them. It feels like the no, right yeah. move. It feels like we nailed it. 
think we always think, fuck, like we look back Actually, at our music taste. Yeah, yeah. We're in that music uh, space and, and I yeah. think, what was I listening to yeah. five years ago? Yeah. Fuck, things have changed. Yeah. I actually have a um, one of the framing techniques that I like to use in my own life is a reverse engineering of that. I like to call it the author, like playing mm. the role of the author. And it works like this. You imagine yourself as your future self. Let's say you're an 80-year-old person mm. uh, looking back on your life, writing your own autobiography. And you inspect the point at which you're actually at in reality and you ask yourself a series of questions like what decision should i make to write the best book you know what would i be proud of myself for having done in this situation um and it really helps frame decision making because sometimes it's always shrouded by subjectivity right um, but being able to self-distance like that and think to yourself like what would write the best story if i if i make this decision like, what will the character be 10 chapters on from now? You know, it, do I fear inaction or not doing something? And if I don't do that, will I continue down the same path? Is this a new idea for you? Or is this something that was paramount at the front of mind when coming out of hospital and stepping into life? It's uh, an idea that I had when I was writing my memoir. Um, now, I'd always had a version of this that I did. Uh, of trying to imagine myself in the future and think about my life and what would I be proud for having done? You know, what path mm. should I take? There's an interesting guy called Ethan Cross. He's a psychologist. I think he's Canadian and he's developed the, a concept of uh, self-distancing uh, awkwardly right before COVID. So it kind of got mingled in there with um, social distancing. But self-distancing is the idea that uh, you're taking yourself mentally out of yourself and looking at yourself from a third person perspective mm. and thinking what should you do in a particular situation uh he cited a reference to lebron james where he said there were all these interviews when lebron was moving to uh cleveland and uh they're saying like you know well, what's the next step for you lebron and he's like well lebron's got to do what lebron's got to do and speaking about himself in the third person mm. everybody thought what a dickhead right but Ethan was saying, well, basically what he's, what he's doing here is he's actually using this uh, framing technique of thinking of himself in the third person, which gives him the benefit of subjectivity by being the person, but almost like you're giving advice to a friend. Like, have you ever noticed mm. that whenever yeah. you give advice to friends, it's always brilliant, but you never take it yourself? You know <laughs> what I mean? And it's because you're detached from the situation and you can see uh, components of the overall picture that the person can't see because they're shrouded by narrow objectives, right? So it's trying to oscillate between the distant self and the present self. And the autobiographer or the author is just a version of that where you project yourself way into the future and you think about yourself as a story. And the reason I've thought about it as an, a, a situation of being an author was because I was forced to write this memoir and I'm, I'm writing about my whole life and I probably wrote twice the amount that that book was knowing that I was going to have to cut half of it. And so I'm going through all of these stories in my life and I'm like, well, that's bullshit or that doesn't fit into the whole narrative or that's not useful to people or I don't like that or that's not funny. Or... And then the more I looked at it, I'm like, half of my life is not fit for literature, which is a fucking disgrace. Right? So I'm going to make sure that the rest of my life is. I love this idea because I think it is a very healthy way for people to move towards something that they're proud of. I too commonly hear from people who will reach out to me off the back of the podcast, a lot of them being young men, this concept that oh, I want to look at the man in the mirror and be proud of myself, mm. which suggests that maybe some people aren't. 
And sure. I think that there's something to be said for, you know, we're always evolving and growing. And as we said, sometimes we don't favorably see where we're at or where we've come from because sometimes it can be cringy to look back. But I think that we should all be making an effort somewhat to look in the mirror and go, fuck, I'm really proud of that human being. And so to think about projecting yourself into the future and moving towards that image, for you, when you projected your view to Tom Nash at the point in his life in which he's saying, catch you later, I'm out, Mm. who did you see? And then what did you do to to be that person? Or to be the person you are now? So I wasn't looking at who I was when I was 80. I was imagining myself being 80, looking at me at 41. It didn't matter who I was at 80. Mm. Whoever I am at 80, if I ever get there, is who I'm going to be. That's probably predetermined (laughs) to a certain extent. Um, But it's not important to look at that person. It's important for that person to look at me. Because think about it, you know, has anyone ever asked you, you know, what advice would you give to your younger self? Yeah, of course. Right. You, you hear that question all the time. Uh, somewhat interesting, basically useless, right? Because you can't actually give advice to that younger person at all. I mean, it's more useful to, you know, people who follow Simon Sinek or things like that, you know, and yeah. try and give advice to themselves of what Simon would have told his fucking, you know. For sure. Uh, but it, as, as, a, as a, a technique of introspection for yourself, it's much more important to inform the decisions and behaviors that you have right now. And the only way to do that is to project yourself into the future and look back on your current situation and ask yourself a bunch of questions, which is like, what would I be proud of myself for having decided? What path should this character take? What is going to make for an interesting life? How, does, how do these behaviors align with the values of the character? And for you, what are the answers to that question? Well, well they're always evolving, right? At every different juncture, yeah. you know? And so for me now, as an example, it's to be an effective communicator about ideas. You know, how I do that is not exactly determined yet, right? Could be through coming on podcasts and talking to people. Could be through writing books. Could be through making YouTube videos. It could be, you know, a series of things. But I go through a transitional period in my life, let's say, where I say, okay, I've spent 17 or 18 years making something of myself because... I knew it wasn't good enough to just get out of hospital, you know, lose four limbs and be like, hello, you know, that's just kind of fucking useless. Uh, But if I got out of hospital losing four limbs and then became a DJ and then started a club and then learned to play guitar again and all this sort of Mm. things, um, that's an achievement in a way. And it also teaches me a lot of lessons and they're lessons that I can communicate to other people. So now I might be in a transitional period where I'm like, okay, I need to, you know, turn these lessons or ideas into digestible concepts to communicate with people to help others Mm -hmm. um and then it would be like well what decisions do i make to do this and that's when you employ the author and you know the author might be okay you need to be in a different market or you need to start you know focusing on this thing more and forget about that because you think it's important now but it's not really that important you know like um yeah that's how i would use it yeah Speaking of ideas, mm. you shared an idea with me just before. This mm. idea that you think less about resilience and more about being anti-fragile. Yes. I like the way that you frame that. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear more about it. Okay, so anti-fragility is something that uh, was an idea conceptualized by Nicholas Taleb. Uh, he's an options trader, weirdly. Uh, and he's talking about anti-fragility mainly in systems and economics and 
ecologies and things like that. Effectively, anti-fragility is the opposite to fragility. Resilience is something that lies in the middle, right? So a wine glass is fragile. Uh, we don't need to run any experiments to prove that. Um, a rock is resilient, uh, but it's also quite boring. But something that's anti-fragile would be like your muscular system, right? So it benefits from stresses. So if you put stresses on a rock, rock doesn't change. Put stresses on a wine glass, it breaks. You put stresses on your muscles, your muscles get stronger. Yeah, right? I love that. Your immune system is anti-fragile. We know by, you know, we can give it small bits of virus and it can develop immunities to them and things like mm. that. Uh, the airline industry, weirdly, is anti-fragile because from every plane that falls out of the sky or, or crashes, you know, there's all these systems in place to actually build up security measures audits and all this sort of stuff so every with every plane that crashes the next flight gets a bit safer right mm. it rebounds it does it's not resilient it gets better it, it's there was never a word for the opposite of fragile until Taleb came up with it and wrote the book on it I recommend the book by the way it's fantastic so then I would question so we speak about resilience and it's common to hear people talk about resilience I'm one of them I speak about resilience a lot mm. But I love this idea. And one of the concepts I've never framed in the way that you've spoken about is that for me, my biggest challenges and adversities have been an opportunity to grow. I would not take back the things that I've been challenged by because I believe I'm a better person for them, which I, I sense is what we're speaking about. That's an anti-fragile mindset. You're not resilient. So can then I ask you a question? Is the ingredient to go from resilient to anti-fragile just perspective? No, it's, it's, it's growing from adversity rather than, you know, just being like fate's punching bag, right? Somebody that could get through a bunch of trauma or hardships and be the same person on the other side is resilient. Somebody who gets better on the other side of that is anti-fragile. So that can you, sense? yeah, it does. Yeah. But can you put that in the framing of your story? Like mm. what was the, the step to not just get through it, but to go, I'm going to grow. I'm going to be a better person. Well, it's, it's not necessarily... A, I didn't wake up one morning and think this. There is a thing called post-traumatic growth. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. I have, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's some interesting research um, by a guy called Tedeschi and Cal Horn, I think it is, about um, post-traumatic growth. And it does observe that some people that go through trauma end up feeling more life enrichment after it. And a series of different effects that happen to some people and not to others, weirdly. But mm. I don't know. It's an effect. I think I did actually experience that to an extent. Uh, and I did make the con conscious decision to utilize lessons that I'd learned um, to actually become stronger. It wasn't an overnight thing. It's uh, what's that? Uh, it, it may not happen overnight, but it will happen. Uh, is, is it fucking uh, Maybelline or something? something um, like yeah, yeah. No, that, that's maybe she's born with it, which is another one yes. that we could probably tack on to some anti-fragile talk. For sure. <laughs> uh, because, you know, when you talk about the, um, uh, what is it? Like the heritability of, of when people say resilience or happiness, you know, there's, a, there's a fantastic study by Sonia Lubomirsky in, in the US about whether happiness is something heritable. Okay. And she actually worked out that something like 50% of the happiness that people experience is that they're born with it. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's it. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, study. yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And then there's some that's like 10% is circumstance, like where you're born, mm. um, uh, whether you have a job, blah, blah, blah. And then 40%, I think, don't 
quote me on these figures, is like our thoughts and actions and behaviors that actually yeah. contribute to the whole, you know, pie graph of our overall happiness. So yeah, maybe she's born with it. Uh, maybe it's uh, subjective well-being. Um, but uh, what were we talking about, sorry? Well, um, I guess the thing that I'm really curious is, to, and the reason that I'm diving into the depths of this concept is, as someone who sees and, and communicates with people all the time who feel like they're in the face of challenge because of this podcast, because of what I do mm. in the speaking space, it seems really present to me that we're talking about all of these concepts more than ever. And we're talking about things like mental health more than ever. And we've vocalized the messaging behind that. And we have more support systems for people than ever. But I feel like more people are struggling than ever. Yeah. And I'm trying so. to figure out how we can, how we can bridge the gap. Not that we're going to solve the world's problems. But if we can somewhat address, you know, what are the things that people can tangibly do? Mm. Because talking about it doesn't seem to be enough. You know, more people are faced by these challenges than ever. How do we take the personal responsibility to become anti-fragile? Well, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head there inadvertently when you're saying talking about it isn't enough. But it definitely, controlling the narrative is important, Mm. right? Because, you know, the difference between... um, let's say, you know, grievance and gratitude is massive, right? Like the, uh, the idea of victim mentality, which is quite prevalent these days, mm. um, that has controlled the narrative for way too long. I think only really in Western cultures, um, to be honest. But um, so talking about it actually does make a difference because, you know, for, uh, let's say, paving the path ahead with different approaches to trauma, to adversity, to challenges, to problems, to any negative part of life, you know, paving that path with uh, a different approach could be resilience, could be anti-fragility, whatever it is, uh, is an important thing to be talking about and shifting the narrative away from grievance, I think. Yeah, for sure. And because I think there's this, you know, one of my mates always says this quote that it's not my fault, but it's my responsibility. Mm, sure. And I think that seems to play an important part in it that a lot of us are stuck up on the idea that life is unfair. Mm. It's like, well, yeah. we all know that. And you are, yeah, yeah. We all right. know yeah. that. But it's, you know, you have to do something about it. And so I'm really passionate about identifying what that is in people's stories, like yourself. Mm. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I, I think honestly, it's, it's too far an individualistic situation. So, you, like, everybody's challenges are completely different Mm. there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all for everybody Um, but i think it's it's about cultivating a different mindset in approaching your own problems so for me specifically it would have been um, you know the first time i started walking up stairs for the first time and not being able to do it the way i always did and then turning my body sideways and realizing that that was an easy way to get upstairs being an allegory for oh i'm gonna have to do everything differently to the way that everyone else does it right? How can I use that to my advantage? Well, I can learn how to redefine problems, like setting fire to something rather than Mm. using a lighter, like starting a nightclub rather than learning how to DJ, you know, things like that. Um, And everybody's life is going to be going to have nested within it. All of these little beautiful lessons, you just need to be open to looking for them. Well, I think that we're speaking about that well, we have been speaking about that in the context of facing challenges, but I think that's a great message for life in general mm. because we tend to sometimes go, oh, you know, you hear this conversation all the time. Oh, I'm 30. I should have had a house by now. I should really be married with kids by now. Mm. 
and we're learning that as you know modern life evolves and society changes that we don't all need to follow the same timelines and then you can go and can have the approach that you did that maybe I should attack things differently mm. to the way that everyone else does it. Yeah. Did that mindset not only um, apply to your physical challenges and mental challenges, but has it also applied to the way in which you then tackled the journey of life? Well, I think physical and mental uh, is life, right? So at the, at the end of the day. So it that happens by dint of its, its own existence. You know, like I... I Pardon me. <clears throat> I was obviously made aware of it and it was something that happened to me. So that, that lesson was imposed upon me. But my choice to use that and, and map it onto future challenges was something that was conscious, right? Mm. And then that, in an effect, changes the whole trajectory of your life. And, you know, like framing is everything in life. You, you know, you can choose to look back on things and realize that you've grown or learned something or you've developed a skill or you've identified an opportunity or you've found a humor in something i was just talking to someone the other day sorry last night uh about i've been writing a script about the idea of uh you know when you have those days when everything goes wrong it's just like one thing after another and they could all be trivial but they all just build up to this ridiculous day of failure where mm. like and I, and I had one yesterday right it was a weird thing because i was just writing i was writing about uh, it the other day oh it was just like i hadn't i couldn't sleep the night before and so i, I just got out of bed at one o'clock and i was just writing till about six o'clock in the morning then i decided i was going to get two hours sleep and get up and film some stuff so i did that slept an extra hour got up my partner was in here on a meeting that i thought was going for 45 minutes i get a call from my prosthetist and they're like oh you know how you need that um leg finished off that you're wearing i'm currently wearing a leg that's not finished right okay um, they're like, oh, you can come in to do that today at two o'clock or not for three weeks. I'm like, what kind of <laughs> like, <Great> ultimatum <laughs> is that? And I'm like, fuck you, because that's in the middle of my day, right? So I start yeah. panicking. I'm shifting around other meetings and all this crap. And then my, my partner's meeting goes for longer than I thought it would, like two hours. I'm just stressing out. I'm having to text her. Meanwhile, my leg's giving me shit. And I'm like, all right, I've just got to leave the house. I've got to do it. I'm going to make myself a coffee. We're going to go. And as I'm like holding the milk jug, going to put it back in the fridge, it falls and it's like a two liter milk thing. So it goes bang and the milk goes all over the kitchen. And in the moment I was like, I want to kick this milk bottle. I like, I want to kick it into the living room. And I know that's going to make my life so much worse, but there was something about the immediacy of it where I'm like, I'll feel so much better just for a second. If I just kick this milk bottle, I didn't kick the milk bottle. But then I remember thinking to myself, uh, Here's something to laugh about later. Don't cry over spilt milk. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I did end up like laughing about later. Um, But I was able to like use that. So my partner ended up coming out. She's like, don't worry, I'll I'll drive you to the prosthetist. She's really good in those situations. She knows how to calm me down. And it afforded me some time to like reflect on the whole thing and all the disasters that have been happening that day of which I won't punish the listeners with. But, you know. As I'm going there in the car, I'm thinking my first instinct is going up to the front desk and just blasting them about shit like, uh, you know, about giving me this ultimatum, like sort of five hours before a particular time, like I'm some, you know, uh, shut in cripple sitting here twiddling my hooks, waiting for the call of ultimatum from, you know, this company that is probably as organized as an Italian government. I'm walking there and it's all going through my head. 
And then I'm like, hang on a second. Let's just, I need to calm myself down. Quick meditation practice, like breathing technique, stop the physiological responses of this, and then try and work out what would be the best course of action moving forward to mm-hmm. stop this from happening again. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to speak to uh, my prosthetist about organizing a day where I can actually come in there for an entire day. I'll be there from nine till five. I'll bring my laptop in. I'll work from there. They do what they need to do. I can be there the whole time. And we don't have to have this bullshit of like calling you up. Like you've got five hours to come in here ever again. And so I worked that out. And so I left there with a better plan than if that hadn't happened to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's how I'm going to treat it moving forward now. Like it's the best way to manage my time with them. Um, Because, you know, it's that weird thing. Like having a disability is kind of like, uh, it's like its own little part-time job. Like there's things that you have to do, like going to a prosthetist or managing your NDIS or all all this sort of crap that, you know, it sort of prohibits you from actually being able to spend time doing what you want to be doing. So at the most it's an inconvenience. And so my, my job is to kind of minimize that inconvenience as best I could. So moments like that, where everything is falling down around you, um, can sometimes be something that you laugh about later. Um, you will have had that moment with a friend once where shit's just gone haywire and you're like, we'll laugh about this one day. Um, and there can also be moments that can teach you things of like how to better organize your life to mitigate that shit happening in the future. It's interesting you say this today because last night whilst you were likely laughing about that day that you did have an experience, mm. I was watching Modern Family with my partner. Yeah. The episode in particular being the one where... Every morning, Phil will take his undies off and flick them off his foot into the air. And if he catches them, it's yeah. going to be a great it's day. <laughs> if he doesn't, the day goes to shit. Yeah, yeah. And the episode is about exactly that. The That's day great. where he doesn't catch the undies and it's an absolute fucking disaster. And it's, it's funny because I would say that in, um, in my own way, I can be a... And it's funny, my dad is like this and my sister is like this too. We can be, we're the type of characters that if you kick your toe on the coffee table, you want to fucking give the coffee table a kick mm. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and it's being able to stop yourself. Yeah. And yeah. go, what do I achieve from this? Yeah, yeah. Other than, you know, hurting my foot already. It's a really hard thing have. to curtail in your life. I've gotten better at it the older mm. I've gotten. Um, and I used to have much more of a temper than I do now. But um, yeah, it's definitely a skill that you develop. Like just being able to stop yourself in the moment and thinking, okay, you know, control your emotional response to this because it's not actually helping you. But yeah, that, so that was a weird day for me. And the, you know, the other thing that I got from it as well was just this overwhelming gratitude for my partner because she exited the studio, saw me in an absolute fit of panic with milk all over the floor. And she's like, stop what you're doing. She's like, I'll fix this. Please calm down. Like, yeah. you'll be all right. Like, I'll take you to the thing, like all this sort of mm. stuff. And, you know, there's there's a gratitude in that because I'm like, fucking hell, like, where would I be if I didn't have that? Of course. You know, it would be so much worse than if I was having to deal with it myself and allowed to do what I wanted mm. to do with the milk bottle and the, For sure. and the, and the place. But um, so, yeah, there were so many positive things that came out of that. There was humor. There was gratitude. There was like, you know, learning and developing new systems of doing things in the future. And I think, you know, you have the choice at the end of the day to be like, that was the worst day of my life, or I'm going to use that day to get better and appreciate like days that aren't like that. Of course. And, you know, the interesting thing being there, you mentioned 
two particular things, humor and gratitude, of which I believe are two of the things that can help you enjoy even the most mundane of moments mm. in your life. I think with humor and gratitude, life is better. Yeah, for sure. You know, we talk about all the things that you're doing in your life right now. A few times we've referenced Hook, Line and Sinner in mm. your book, which once again is brilliant. Thank you. The work you're doing in the keynote speaking space, you've done a TED talk, I know you're doing a bunch of stuff, not just in Oz, but internationally. Mm. You know, you're DJing and you're doing your stuff. And do you still have the club? Yeah, we did it on Saturday night, actually. We did a Halloween party. Amazing. So yeah. there's so many things happening in your life. Yes. What are the things right now that you're trying to get from that? Get like, what from is the purpose life? of those things that you do? What do they give you? Most of the time, it's... I mean, the, the club right now is more of an outlet than anything else and the, the DJing. Like, I like having a creative outlet. It doesn't necessarily need to be music. It could be writing or whatever it is. Uh, the club was something that Chris and I built from 2006 from nothing. And we only do a couple of parties a year now and sometimes we DJ. In fact, we're coming to DJ in Wollongong in a couple of weeks. I did see that on your yeah, story yeah, today. Yeah. Um, and uh, New Year's Eve as well. Yeah, wow. Um, so we used to play Wollongong quite a lot. But, what about you know, in Wollongong? Uh, we played at... Um, what's that club that's on? We, we played a few. There was like 151 we used to play a lot. Um, yeah. The... That group owns like a few different venues. Yeah, there's now like, is it Mr. Crown now? Which is well, so we Glass haven't been House. down there for a while. We've played Glasshouse before, but only a couple of times. I think uh, it wasn't a big venue for us. One Five One was big, and the is it the Grand? The Grand, yeah, the Grand, okay, yeah, played group, there yeah. a couple of times, like quite a few times, I think. So this one might be um, different completely, but you know, my relationship with DJing now is kind of just like it's an outlet. It's fun. It's also our baby and our brand. Of course. Um, and so we like to, you know, keep it alive. And then the speaking stuff and, you know, podcasting and video production and writing uh, is all what I was mentioning before about like the, the transition to becoming some sort of a communicator. And I don't know exactly what that looks like right now or how it plays out, but I'm just um, trying a bunch of different things to see what works for me. You know, like what is, what is the, best modus operandi moving forward i guess what seems to be the standout at this point i think you know connecting with people 101 uh, um, is probably my most favored you asked me before when we were talking before the cameras are rolling about the public speaking thing do i enjoy it and i do enjoy it uh, but i enjoy more the feedback that i get from people after conferences and stuff like that and having one-on-one conversations um just because I like it doesn't mean it's the best approach. Um, of course. It's just what uh, I get the most out of, I guess. Mm. And it could even be just like people that message me online and say, hey, look, I've watched this thing or I read your book or um, I really like this part or I like that part. And so I'm like, I'm getting real-time feedback on, you know, what resonates with people, like what is helping them, what kind of stories is actually going to make a change in their perception or get them to think differently about their own lives or something like that. Obviously, it's going to be very individualistic, and we've spoken about that on a a number of occasions today. But when you get those messages, Mm. what is it about your story, your experience, your way of telling it and connecting with people that seems to be the most helpful for the majority? Oh, um, the overarching... (laughs) Yeah, the the most overarching thing is would be uh, it being the kind of opposite to what people expect, right? So... Typically, when they hear stories about people who have gone through trauma or horrible things, it's always a story of grievance. It's mm. not um, a story of 
stoicism or you know wanting to move forward and and treating that trauma with an element of humor you know not in the sense that you're lying to yourself about what has or hasn't happened um but understanding that it's something that you can't change and focusing on what you can change being the most important part of your life and um and not complaining about it and expecting the world to change for you because that's unrealistic and selfish and stupid i love that it's a beautiful message and it's not to um, pump myself up here, but it's funny that I just spoke to you this morning about um, just having done a podcast with Mark Burris mm. and the clip that they shared last night was me speaking about that exact fact and mm. how that has helped me in my life. I think how my family have, my family being the incredible people they are, have inspired that in me, have bled that into my mindset and that's yeah. sort of the person I've become. But I find it very fascinating to see that in other people. And I would say that I was interested to hear what you were going to reply to what people expect of you. Mm. Because my first framing of you was seeing you on Andrew, Andrew Hamilton's pod, mm. seeing a, a funny moment, yeah, and then going, I want to hear more about what this guy has to say. Mm. And I went to your TED Talk. Yeah, right. And your TED Talk seemed to inspire the message that you just delivered. Yeah, I guess it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The funny thing about that TED Talk is it wasn't the one that I was going to deliver. Talk me through that. <laughs> uh, this is a story I don't tell very often, but uh, I got asked to do that TED Talk back in 2019. And I was it was actually weird because I was on my way to France. I was going to live there for a few months. And I was halfway there. I was in Dubai in the airport. I got a call. And they're like, would you like to do a TED Talk this year? And I was like, uh, yeah, that'd be great. And they're like, oh, it's in May, I think it was. And that was within the time I was still going to be in France. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm overseas. I could probably like change my flights to come back. And they're like, oh, if you want to do it in 2020, that's fine. And something in my head, I was like, no, I'll do it this year. And it was lucky because the next year was the pandemic and the whole thing was shut down. It was For done sure. on video. So I was kind of lucky that I snuck in there back when it was still live in front of 6,000 sure. people, you know? Um, and so I did all of the correspondence when I was overseas between the TED people and they're quite excellent team and, you know, um, very refined way of manufacturing a speech in a way like it's all kind of scripted verbatim. You talk to teams about it and all this sort of stuff and you submit your ideas. And uh, they said, I'll oh, give us two to three concepts for talks and uh, we'll, we'll tell you which one we like. I said, all right, okay. Oh, shit. Oh, cool. We're out. It just, no, it's not that. It just, uh, it overheated. Hang on a sec. That's all right. I'm going to yeah, take turn it. it off. I'll give it a sec. They tend to do that. Do you, I'll do the do, 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 yeah. do, 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 do. We'll just give it a few I seconds. I can't believe I forgot to turn that fucking thing on. Oh, uh, look, I mean, I think it's, it's not too noisy in here. They should um, be all right. We'll, yeah. we'll try and like put it through the Adobe thing. I saw someone doing it online. I'll be able to search up some some sort of yeah. way of doing it's it. It's like Adobe Podcast something. And this guy got... I, I watched him get a clip of him talking outside to, in his, mm. to his phone or something. And there was all this background noise and shit. And he put it through this website and it came out like it was recorded on a microphone. It, was, it uses AI. That's cool. It's crazy. That's yeah. cool. So it's not going to sound like this sounds. Yeah. But it won't sound bad. Either way, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Can you do something actually? Try mm -hmm. to hold it still. 
I'm going to move this out. Yeah, try that. Because I know that moving the screen out can help. We'll try. We'll see how this goes. Uh, 15 minutes left on that card, apparently. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, what was it? Yeah, so anyway, uh, the, the the TED Talk stuff, the correspondence with TED happens for me over email, right? And mm. I'm, they've asked me to submit like two to three ideas for talks. And I thought, I'm not going to send three because that's going to look like I'm just throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. I'll send two. And I'll make sure to send one that I don't want to do and one that I do want to do, right? And I sent them both and they picked the one I didn't want to do. <laughs> and the funny thing was, uh, I didn't even really have a, a framework for it. I only had a title. I just came up with the title. I'm like, yeah, The Perks of Being a Pirate. That's a funny title. And then I'm like, uh, you know, I can I'd do a little blurb about what it might be. Hey, mm. advantages from having a disability. And I thought they're definitely not going to pick that. And they're like, we like the perks of being a pirate. I'm like, really? They're like, yep. I'm like, all right, fine. So that's what I did. And you're going to ask, what was the other one? And I don't remember. What I was actually going to ask <laughs> is, why is that the one you didn't want to do? Uh, because I'm an idiot. I don't know. Like, what is... <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think maybe the other one, and I forget what the topic was... I'd thought through in my head a few a few more times and mm. I had some funny jokes that I'd put in there and I thought I'll, I'll be able to make something good out of that. Have you been speaking a lot at this point in time? Because I've heard mixed reports from speakers who have done a TED Talk. Some of them, their first talk ever mm. was on a TEDx stage. Others have been five, ten years into their speaking career and mm. you know have established themselves as a you know highly successful and in-demand keynote speaker. Yeah, I was, I'd done a couple of talks, but I certainly wasn't very proficient at it for starters. I wasn't doing it professionally. I probably did like a couple of year or something like that. Mm. Um, I wasn't getting a very high fee. The events weren't that large scale and I would speak mainly extemporaneously and just get up mm. and I'd have a rough framework of what I was talking about. But uh, yeah, the, the TED Talk was something that honed my ability to polish a talk um but the talks that i give now are nothing like ted talks ted talks are very unique right mm. very short they're very short it's five to ten minutes ideally it's scripted perfectly um you know the the story arcs are implicit everything you know the opening it's a it's it learning how to do it is a really good skill of course um but you rarely ever map it onto future situations you know it's it's going to be you know, some company, we've got our symposium, you've got the stage for 45 minutes, you know, talk for half an hour or something like that. You're not scripting something like that. It's not a TED talk. You would bore people to death if it was a TED talk that went for half an hour. Of course. Yeah. And that's why I think it's a, it's an interesting topic because I think there's merit, as you said, to both. Mm. Where yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I think personally, the best keynotes I've ever listened to are the people who get up on stage and don't typically speak all the time, but have this level of charisma. Mm. And, you know, there is this kind of delivery that's so unique yeah. that it hits you. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I took something from that. Utilizing I like their pauses journey. very well. Yeah. Uh, you they, know, you know, Obama was great at that. Yeah. Mm. Great communicators. They're, they're just charismatic in the yeah. way they hold themselves. But then I have listened to TED Talks, yours being one of them. 
that I fucking thoroughly enjoyed oh, and can you. see the value in something that's quite precise and quite short. Yeah. And so it's interesting to note that different things work for different audiences. Yeah, that's right. And you got to remember that TED is such a huge brand that it is like a... Your TED Talk is almost like a portfolio in a way. Yeah. It's the first thing everyone's going to watch, as you said. Like, you mm. know, you, you saw me on something, you're like, oh, I'll go watch the TED Talk. And it's the thing that's going to get the most views. It's the thing that you're going to be remembered for until you do another one. And maybe not even then. Um, so it's a portfolio in a way. And I, I don't think I was ready. I, I wasn't cognizant of how much it would be attached to my brand. Uh, and I'm, I'm really lucky that they chose wisely on my talk because it could have gone the other way. I'm really intrigued to ask you one last question to finish things off. I know that we are, it feels like we're fighting the elements of technology. We've got a memory <laughs> card just running out. We've got batteries overheating cameras. We've missed parts of it's the all recording. About, it's all about the content, right? Yeah. If it's good, it doesn't matter. And so, somewhat the chaos makes it exciting, I'll yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, I um, guess so. One of the things that I found very intriguing in your book was your interaction with Mark Chopper Reed. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. speaking in that interaction about you know, walking into that space. And, you know, one of the things that he said to you was something around, you made a comment, something along the lines of, you know, people will look at me and the thing they'll remember me for is my hooks or my look or the, you know, the physical nature of your disability. And he said, yeah, well, you can't change that. Something along those lines. Of course, I'm, I'm speaking from my, um, I guess my memory of it. But the thing that I I think is interesting is that it is a very true point. People are going to remember you for what they want to remember you by. You know, the hooks are something that is going to stand out. It's a part of your branding. Yeah. Have you come to terms with that and been able to use that to your advantage or is there still difficulty to that? To that? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I've struggled with the most is um, trying to convince people that I have value outside of the fact that I have two hooks. So, mm. I mean, a, a perfect example of that was DJing. So... You know, the, my relationship with people's appreciation of my DJing was somewhat asymptotic, right? Which is to say that the better I got at the actual skill of DJing, I began to experience diminishing returns in the appreciation of people who watched me, right? Because built in is a component of this is impressive because I'm watching a DJ with hooks, right? It doesn't really matter how good he is at that point. So he can become amazing. It's only really going to increase my appreciation of this experience a little bit. And, uh, you know, there's various forms of that in my life right now, even with speaking and ideas. I mean, to an extent, um, people just want to hear what happened to me and, you know, how I dealt with this and that and the other. Uh, so if I sort of veer from that course, it's very difficult for me to disseminate uh, different or nuanced ideas. Um, so to an extent, yes, you have to, as Chopper said to me, you know, um, you've got to, to an extent, you've got to be who people want you to be. Because again, it's sort of like, leaning into that what you have not focusing on what you don't Mm. and so the challenge for me is uh using my physical appearance and what i've been through as a kind of here comes the airplane right to uh deploy digestible pieces of wisdom to people who are otherwise not paying attention i think it's a really valid point and it's, it's something I've experienced a little bit in my own story whereby I operated through the first 24 years of my life without ever really sharing my story. Mm. And so people, people didn't really 
lend an ear. Not that I was sp- I was outwardly looking for opportunity to do so, but people didn't really lend an ear to what I had to say about my experience or the way that I lived my life. The moment that there was some context as to my challenge and the fact that I was, you know, had bleeding lungs and run a marathon and this stuff, people then su- suddenly perked their ears up. Yeah. Like, now we're interested. Yeah, that's, that's right. Because that's chaotic. Yeah, yeah. And okay, people are busy, attention. right? So it's like, why am I listening? For sure. I totally get it. Yeah. And I've had to learn to somewhat understand that there's going to be those parts of the story they want to hear. We spoke about him before, my mate Brett Canellan. Yeah. You know, he said, the funny thing is, it's not hard for me to get people's attention. Because mm. when you talk about getting attacked by a bull shark, everyone wants to hear the yeah, story. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, but yeah. it's understanding that that story opens the door mm. to, okay, how can I help people? How can that's, I share some value? That's precisely it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mate, it's been such a pleasure for me. I've, I've found you to be a, a funny character, someone who I think speaks with such wisdom. You know, and I'm really excited for people to hear this conversation. I want to make sure, though, that people don't only hear this and enjoy it, but rather go and check out everything else that you're doing. Mm. You know, where can people find you? Obviously, there's the book. You can find me uh, at the end of most bars having a martini, actually. (laughs) Uh, Follow me if you want. I'm on Instagram at DJ Hookie. Um, I'm on... Oh, fuck it. Just go there. (laughs) <laughs> go there. That's, we'll call go that the there. central line yeah that is the central it's not line people's there. responsibility to follow me it's for me to find them so I love that mate thank <laughs> you so much for your time thanks for coming up cheers pleasure thank you so much for tuning into another episode of a lot to talk about it means the world that you guys are in my corner that you continue to listen to the show every week and if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognize the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling And as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week.